in Ezra chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. I, um, I was reading this past week, and I came across a, uh, something that one of my professors from seminary had written, and he was commenting on uh, a comment that he overheard at, at um, the seminary where, where he uh, earned his Ph.D. And it was a comment about Charles Wesley in particular, but about history in general, and the comment was from a student and it was something to the effect of, who really cares all that much about Charles Wesley? I mean, I understand he's important to us Methodists, and I understand this is a Methodist school, but really, people of my generation don't care too much about history. History really has nothing to offer to us, and so why does it really even matter? And I thought, well, that's, that's that. That's a very interesting perspective. It's a very popular perspective. The Scriptures, however, will not let us get away from history. They will not let us get away from history any more than they will let us get away from Thanksgiving. Not the holiday, but the giving of thanks. The expression of gratitude. Commanded all throughout the Scriptures. And the command to learn from history is really underlying all that is laid out for us in Scripture. Because God is a God who has acted in history. And it matters what happened. It matters what happened, not just so that we can learn from it, but because it is reality. This stuff really happened. We sang the hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. And we, we sing about the fiery trials and the waters that were called to pass through and all those things. And all throughout God's Word, He lays out in history His reliability, His trustworthiness that He can be counted on. If we're honest with one another, we would probably confess that we don't know all that much about Ezra. And perhaps even little more do we know of his counterpart, Nehemiah. We think, yeah, wait a minute, that's, 
in the Old Testament. Were they prophets? What's going on with their lives? What was their significance? And I'm kind of caught off guard when I stop and think of the magnitude of these two men, specifically here of Ezra. Now these first few chapters of the book of Ezra take place before Ezra returns with the Hebrew people to Jerusalem. But here we have this decree from King Cyrus of Persia. Think of it. A pagan king ruling over a pagan nation which has become the mega power of all the ancient world. The Persians overtook the Babylonians, which was the mega power. They had overtaken the Assyrians, which were the mega power. King of Persia, Cyrus the Great. The Lord God, Yahweh Himself, He has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth. They are in my hand. Now you'll have to, in order to, get, uh, to catch the significance of this event, you'll have to keep a few things in mind. One is to go back about 150 or more years to the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 45 of Isaiah's prophecy, actually turn with me, I hadn't planned to do this, but I think it will be helpful to us. Isaiah chapter 45, this is... In the middle of Isaiah's prophecy, you remember Isaiah is prophesying, he, he begins his prophecy before Israel's taken into captivity, before, before those southern tribes are taken into Babylonian captivity, captivity, he's prophesying to the people and he's warning them of judgment that is, that is ahead. In chapter 39, you have the Babylonian envoys that besiege the city of Jerusalem and that's it, it's over. Israel is taken into captivity. Starting at chapter 40 and on, Isaiah, living before the captivity, before the exile, he begins prophesying to those who are going to be in exile. And then later on in the last few chapters, he's prophesying even to people who are going to come out of exile, which is completely unheard of in the ancient world. It didn't happen. It had never happened. But in chapter 45, 150 years or more before the fact, Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord to His anointed. Now in Hebrew, that is, Thus says Yahweh to His Messiah. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before Him and loose the armor of kings, to open before Him the, door, the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the, the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, Yahweh, who call you by your name and the God of Israel, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and my, in Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name, and have named you, that you may, though you have not known me, I, Yahweh, there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none 
besides me. I am Yahweh. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, Yahweh, do all these things. 150 years before, not just the return from captivity, but well before even the birth of this king, Yahweh says, You, Osiris, are my anointed. You don't even know me, and watch what's going to happen. That's unbelievable. That's so unbelievable that a lot of scholars, most scholars, to be honest with you, say that's impossible, it didn't happen, there's no way Isaiah said that. That had to have come after the exile. Somebody went in and snuck that one on in there to try to pull one over on us. That's impossible. But our God is the God of the impossible. Our God's the one who says what is impossible to man is not impossible for God. That's why He puts it in there. He explicitly puts it in there so that my people may know I'm going to call you by name though you're not even born. Though you're not yet even being formed. I will give you your name and I will tell you what you will do. You will be my anointed and my people will come back to their land by your word. And What we read here in Ezra chapter 1 is that Cyrus not only decrees that they're going to go back, he says Persia is going to pay for it. Open up the silver. Open up the gold. Send livestock with them so that they'll have food and sacrifices. We're rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem on Persia's dime. Now that's about like God's will being done and Satan footing the bill for it. Unbelievable. And completely and utterly impossible in the ancient world. That had never happened. Never, ever, ever before had a nation been taken into exile and had ever come out of exile, much less maintained their identity as a people. It had never happened. And you know what? It never happened again. There's not a single solitary nation in the ancient world that was led into captivity that ever came out of it, that ever survived it. The exile began in 586 B.C. 586, the the Babylonians surround Jerusalem besiege the city to take their people into a foreign land. Jerusalem will remain in ruins. It'll be bad. It'll be bloody. The Babylonians give way to the Medo-Persians and lo and behold... Some time passes and Cyrus becomes king. And in 538, he decrees you're going back home. You're returning to the land. Yahweh has spoken to me 
and he says he wants his house rebuilt. And so the first of the captives to return go back to Jerusalem. And if you read on in Ezra, you read that once the foundation is finished, there's shouts of hallelujah, there's screaming and praising, excitement, and there's also weeping in the background. Those who had seen the former glory of the temple are weeping. These people came from captivity. They weren't on vacation. You know, it's nice for us to come back home you know, after a nice vacation, even if you're in Disney for a while. You know, it's nice to get back home, sleep in your own bed, you got your own pillow. Able to relax a little bit. It's nice and comfortable. These people weren't on vacation. They were in captivity. They were living in exile in a foreign land. You can read some of the Psalms. By the, river, by the rivers of Babylon we wept as we recalled the glories of the temple. They come back home. Some years pass of working on the foundations in the temple. And in 516, you finally have the temple being rebuilt. Seventy years after the captivity began, the temple is finished. Now in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. It's called Ezra and Nehemiah. We've separated the two. But really their stories kind of go, go together. Ezra was a priest. He returned to Jerusalem when Cyrus said, go back. And he helped as the temple was rededicated. He was priest. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king. Remaining in the lands of Persia. These two had enormous parts to play in the return home. You've heard it said, home is where the heart is. You've heard Dorothy say over and over again, there's no place like home. You've heard... American Express warn you, don't leave home without it, their card. You know, we have a lot of things that we associate with home. Perhaps we associate home with, that's where our pets are. You know, you're going to get home from work and the dog's going to be waiting at the door, wagging his tail. For newlyweds, it's, I can't wait to get home and see my wife, my husband. At the end of, the, of a long work week, we look forward to getting back home on Friday and maybe relaxing a little bit. Watch a movie, eat some popcorn. Maybe watch a game or two or 18 on Saturday, Sunday. We, we have a lot of associations. Associations of affinity, associations of you know, relaxation and comfort when we think of home. But everybody can relate to this idea of home. Sometimes you're, you've moved into a new area and home just doesn't quite feel like home and you find a group of friends or perhaps you find a new church and suddenly you say it's starting to feel like home. Ezra and his people, they knew what it was to be displaced from home. 
they knew what it was to live away from home and always live with the longing that perhaps God will make good on His promises. Perhaps Yahweh will come through for us yet again. After all, He's the one that parted the, the, the waters of the Red Sea. He's the one that sent the plagues on the Egyptians. He's the one that gave us our home. Perhaps He'll be true. Perhaps we could go back. Nah, that's impossible. Nobody ever survives this thing. And then lo and behold, a king named Cyrus says, Israel, pack your bags. It's time to go back home. Israel was like none other. There was no other kingdom that had been told. It's time to go back. When exile happened, when those envoys arrived at your city, your nation, to carry you on into captivity, it was over. But this decree from Cyrus, king of Persia. It speaks to us of the end of judgment. Now I use end here in a kind of twofold manner. Obviously it's the ending of the judgment. They're returning from exile. They're going back. Judgment's over. But Not only is it that end of judgment, it is the purpose or the intent of judgment. You know, an end is is something that gives purpose to a thing, to an event. You know, we use the phrase, a means to an end. We know what a means is, it's a method. The end is the goal, the purpose, the intention. And God's intention in judgment is not punishment, but purification. His his intention, His end in judgment, what He has in store, in mind, His purpose in judging His people, it's not consequences, it's cleansing. See, God is not just some angry, some angry, all-powerful king who just wants to punish those who cross Him. He's a loving Father who wants the best for His children. And judgment is harsh. Judgment hurts. You know, we've all had our parents lie to us and say, this hurts me much worse than it hurts you. It's always a lie. (laughs) But judgment is, it's, it's not an arbitrary thing. If judgment were arbitrary on God's part, we would say He's cruel. He just likes punishing people? No, He likes purifying people. God doesn't enjoy consequences. He enjoys cleansing. That puts the cross in a little bit of a different perspective. The cross is not primarily about 
the father's wrath being taken out on his son because he's just got to beat up on somebody. The cross is about the father redeeming humanity in his son. Taking on the weight. Taking on the guilt. Taking on the sin. To heal. To cleanse. To purify. We speak of Israel coming out of captivity as a remnant. And we remember the prophets promising Israel, judgment is coming. It's sure. There's no way around it. The Babylonian envoys, you can hear them off in the distance. It's happening. But yet, I will keep for myself a remnant. A clean people. A purified people. See, judgment that is arbitrary with no end in mind, it's just cruelty. It's just adding bad upon bad. It was already a bad situation. And now you're just trying to spread out the bad a little bit. We call that justice. But justice actually finds its root in the Hebrew language. And justice, it's also the word judgment, it's about putting things back to order. It's not about you hit me, I hit you. It's about making everything right. Cyrus calls out the decree. Yahweh, the God of all kingdoms, has given to me these kingdoms of the earth. And He wants me to tell you it's time to rebuild the house. It's time to go back home. It's time for the end of judgment to be realized. And Cyrus's decree speaks not just of the end of judgment, but it speaks to us of the faithfulness of Yahweh. And I know you're probably tired of hearing me talk about this, but I think it's pretty important biblically. Yahweh is always faithful. He is always faithful. More faithful than the Marine Corps and their Semper Fidelis. He is always faithful. Israel found itself in a, an utterly hopeless circumstance. They're in captivity. It's impossible to leave. No one ever has. No one ever will. What are we going to do? God has promised us that He's going to bring us back home, but that sort of thing just doesn't happen. You know, it's kind of the... The, the feeling that the disciples had on Good Friday, and probably even more so, but more numbingly, on Holy Saturday, Jesus' body is lying in the ground, and dead people don't come back to life. Especially not on their own power, they don't. Yeah, we've seen maybe prophets like Elijah or Elisha raise back up the dead. We saw Jesus raise back up the dead. After all, just weeks prior, He had raised up Lazarus from the dead. But He's dead. Now what happens? This sort of thing just doesn't happen. It's impossible. They lived in the utter hopelessness of their circumstances. If you read on in Ezra's account, 
you read that even as they begin rebuilding the temple and they begin relaying the foundation, you've got opposition from outside parties coming, heckling them and trying to stall their efforts. This is impossible. You can't do that. The critics. As our professional sports stars would say, the haters. Haters be hating. Come on, you can laugh. They have the opposition not just on the outside, but also their inner faithlessness. This is impossible. What are we going to do? How are we going to rebuild this temple in any way, in any comparability to the old temple? Sounds like an awful lot like Israel coming out of Egyptian captivity. You know, God had sent the plagues, He had redeemed them, He had passed over their firstborn, sustained their lives, brought them through the Red Sea, part of the waters, made them to walk on dry ground. And then in the end, like, what in the world are we doing out here? We at least ate like kings and princes in Egypt. Let's go back. Israel's out of captivity, out of the exile. They've returned back to the land. They're, they've got the freedom to rebuild the temple. Cyrus is, says, says, whatever it costs, just let us know we're paying for it. And Israel's surrounded by their critics. they got on the inside this faithlessness of the impossibility of the circumstances, the utter hopelessness of their circumstances. And you can hear the whispers of Yahweh's faithfulness. Not just saying you can do it, but saying watch what I'll do through you. Because this is about the utter faithfulness of Yahweh. Israel's return, I mentioned, was unprecedented and it was unrepeated. It would never happen again. Yahweh is utterly and always faithful. You hear whispers in this story of the utter irreplaceableness of hope. If the circumstances are hopeless, what we need is a little bit of hope. And Israel's temple represented that hope. The rebuilding of the temple was about having hope that God is always faithful and He will see us through this work. He has brought us out of exile. He has returned us back to our land. He has given to us our identity. He has sustained it throughout exile. We can have hope. And the temple represented hope. The temple was where heaven and earth overlapped one another. That's why you have so much temple language in the New Testament. We think, wait a minute, we've turned that page from the Old Testament. Why are we talking about temple in the, New, in the New Testament? You are the temple of the living God. God's Spirit is indwelling you. That's temple language. The church in the New Testament was seen to be a new temple, so to speak, where God's Spirit dwelled and where heaven and earth met where people of earth participate in the activities of heaven. That's a thing of hope. 
Not wishful thinking, not hopefulness, but real, tangible, real hope. That's what the Gospel is about. The overlapping, not just of heaven and earth, but the overlapping of reality and possibility. This is the reality of the situation. It's bad, it's bleak, it's dark. But the possibility is that light can break through the darkness. That God can do a new thing. That Yahweh's faithfulness can be seen in new ways that you've never even dreamed of. Because He's always faithful. Always and utterly, without end, He is faithful. That's the importance of what we do here on Sunday mornings. If you didn't know it, for the last hour, we've been encouraging one another through hope. That God is able to do things. Not only that, He's wanting to do things. He wants to transform your life. He wants to transform mine. He wants to, through us, transform others. We, we think far, far, far too small and we think far, far, far too small because we think far, far, far too individualistically. We think life, is, life and God is just about me and Jesus and my Bible and trying to plug along and just make it another day. And we are blinded. We blind ourselves to the reality of what the gospel hope is. God wants to shatter our imaginations. He wants to blow away our minds about what He's able to do. Again, this is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt, who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who led them into exile through the Babylonians, a pagan land, and used a pagan king years later to send them back to their land to rebuild their temple. This is that God. And if we think the gospel, if we think the church is just about me kind of eking my way through life, we are sadly mistaken. And we're unfortunately and tragically mistaken. Because we gather together because God is building a people. He's building a people and through that He's building a kingdom. The kingdom is not something far off into the distance that we think is going to eventually come. The kingdom is what Christ preached when He came. Repent because the kingdom is here. That's why the early church met. That's why they celebrated on Sunday, the day of the resurrection, because God's kingdom has been injected into the dead life of this world. It's bringing judgment upon the kingdoms and the thoughts of this world. The gospel is like no other. It is like no other. It is not some escape story that this world's just going to go to hell in a handbasket and whoo, hallelujah, we're going to get out of here. That's not the gospel. Go back and reread it. The gospel is as big 
as the impossible situation of Israel coming back out of captivity, back out of the exile. Because Yahweh is like no other. When we read those few verses in Isaiah, what he keeps repeating is, there is no other. There is no other. There is no other. I'm going to bust open the gates before you, Cyrus. I'm going to cut through the iron bars. I'm going to tear through all those impossibilities because there is no other like me. And my people will know and all the world will know that I am Yahweh and I am the only God There's none other who can challenge His faithfulness. There's none other that can repeat His faithfulness. He is the one who is utterly and always faithful. See, that's why history matters. Because history is the story of reality. It matters that Israel was really in captivity. It matters that these are not just myths, stories to kind of make sense of life and help us to feel better about things. It matters that it really happened. Because the stories of history are like no other. History doesn't always just repeat itself. Just like you don't repeat yourself. You're not going to end this life and somehow spawn into a new life one day. You are irrepeatable? Unrepeatable. There's none other like you. I'm not trying to make you feel better about yourself. I'm just telling you, you are unique. I've said it before, I'll say it probably a thousand more times. You are all weird. We are all weird. Because people are unique. Identical twins are unique. And they're both equally weird. This matters. Ezra matters. Israel coming out of captivity matters. King Cyrus of Persia matters. Because God has invaded history and He has done the extraordinary. He has done the impossible. And He can always be trusted. He can always be counted on. He can always be looked to for hope. He's the one that gives hope to the hopeless. He is the one who makes the impossible possible. He makes all things new. And He is like no other. Let's pray.